You'll know when you have a wild woman. She'll practice her craft without boundaries. She is truly autonomous. Her loyalty is only to the family she serves, a midwife who will not allow herself to be held back by a system she didn't create. This podcast is for the birth keepers who want to grow and change. We're open to learning through self-reflection and supportive community. We are creating this space to explore without judgment. We are remembering we were born wild. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Born Wild podcast. This is one of your hosts, Emma. I am joined with Clover and Sophia. And we're really happy to have Christine with us here today. Um, Christine is a midwife who's been practicing for 33 years. She's a CPM and an LM, um, and she's worked internationally for over 20 years. She's currently working with MSF, Doctors Without Borders, providing humanitarian aid in, in developing countries. She specializes in higher obstetrics in low resource settings. Um, she's attended over 5,000 births, the majority of which were out of hospital, including uh, um, over 500 breaches, over 300 sets of twins, seven sets of triplets, um, and she is a staunch advocate for autonomy in women's health and for physiological birth. So we're so happy to have you, Christine. Thanks for being here with us. Um, we'd love to just dive in kind of from the beginning. We were curious. Um, I heard you, I had been reading your blog, and then I heard you on Dr. Stu and Bliss Young's podcast, and I was so curious to know kind of the beginning of your midwifery journey. So where it all began, and kind of that arc from wherever that started to being a midwife. Sure, well, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Um, I actually did um, a podcast on uh, Journey to Midwifery with um, Amber, where she specifically um, interviews midwives and asks them how they got started and so forth. So um, I did a whole um, episode with her on that. But basically, um, I was in Ohio um, and I did a traditional apprenticeship model um, there. Um, part of it was with the Amish um, and some was not. And um, I kind of did two different apprenticeships. One was with a CNM and the other one was a, with a, a midwife in the Amish community. She was not Amish. She was also not a CPM and um, we were basically illegal. Um, I practiced illegally for probably 17 years in Ohio, um, Virginia after that, um, DC, West Virginia, Maryland, because that whole area there, you can, it's easy to go from one state to another really quickly. Um, and so it was, I was illegal in, in all of those um, states for all of that time. Um, and then I was um, grandmothered into the CPM, sort of, I did the, um, they don't have it anymore, but the, the grand midwife status or the whatever, it, it was experienced midwife. And so you had to document a bazillion births and still do all the pep stuff, but you didn't have to um, like have a preceptor and have a preceptor um, sign off because it was a long time before that that I had been doing that. So, um, so that was great. And then I, I got the CPM and um, I moved to Colorado after I was in Virginia and I was in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. I moved to Colorado. I didn't really have any intention on practicing there. Um, I did get my license there and I, I did attend some births there, but mostly I wanted to um, be raising my son. My son was born at home in, um, in 2000 in Guatemala when I was working down there uh, at a birth center. 
And so he was getting older and I wanted to um, really focus on being with him, but it was really hard to find um, any other kind of work since I had been doing midwifery for so long. So I supplemented um, my you know, regular job with some um, midwifery uh, here and there, but really what I wanted to do was uh, humanitarian aid. And I knew as soon as my son got older, I would um, uh, be out of the country doing attending births. He did um, travel with me a lot um, to Senegal, Ghana, um, oh, we even did births up in Canada, which is not a developing country, but um, I, I traveled to do births, I, um, Brazil, um, all over the place. So, um, but I knew that I, I really wanted to work for MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders. And so I applied to be in their pool and I was fortunate enough to get in. And, and so here we are today. Wow. So how old was your son when you started traveling internationally? Well, uh, he was born in Guatemala, so he was born out of the country, and we lived there for a few years. And um, but uh, then the next, then we came back to the U.S., but um, left uh, not uh, right of around four. He was four years old when we went to Ghana, and then we spent a year there. And uh, yeah, so and then after that, we went to Thailand and Sumatra after the tsunami, if you remember the tsunami in late 2004, tsunami and earthquakes mm -hmm. in, in Indonesia, and we were there. Um, so um, we were there for about three months. Um, and uh, yeah, he was, he had just turned five. He actually learned to swim in the Indian Ocean. So <laughs> it's weird, the little things that you remember. But yeah, so he, he traveled a lot with me. So he was four when I, I guess when I started, although technically he started at birth because I was out of the country when he was born. Right. Wow. Were you in, when you were practicing illegally in those states, um, how would you describe your scope of practice in terms of like the standard CPM scope? Were you attending breaches and twins? Was that kind of something that you learned? Yeah, I worked in the Amish community and I didn't really, I didn't know anything really, I didn't know much about hospital birth or what birth in American hospitals looked like. I, my first experience with birth was at home. Um, and I attended so many Amish births and it's like, oh, this one's breech. Okay. Oh, this woman has twins. Oh, that's cool. It wasn't anything that was out of the norm for me. And, um, then when I sort of <laughs> realized looking around me, like, oh yeah, it's not that way. Like, this is like, people don't have breech births in the hospital and twins are often born by cesarean. And it was just kind of news to me. And it's only gotten worse since then. I thought it was bad then. And we've just gone downhill drastically um, since then, because at least there were a handful of doctors that, that would um, attend breaches and twins. And now uh, all those skills are, are lost. So yeah, I started out doing, doing twins and breaches right away. And it was not anything that was out of the norm for me, nor has it ever been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was your birth experience like with your son? Because um, you said Guatemala is where he was born? Yeah, he was born at home. Um, I had him in water and um, it was unassisted and I was alone actually. And um, it was lovely. Uh, it was long, 36 hours. Um, 24 of those I, said, I would say were, are, were active. I started contracting every three minutes at about that, that mark after and 24 hours after that I um, he was born. Um, it was hard. Pushing wasn't long, maybe 45 minutes. 
And uh, yeah, I reached down and I caught him and I mean, it was the best experience of my life. I remember thinking the next day, um, I just I, I just had that incredible birth high that is just impossible to describe to anyone. And then you feel bad for for people who have had medicated births because it's it's all hormonal and the medication blocks that. So they don't know what that's like. But I remember thinking, I can't. I, I can't just do this again tomorrow because I really wanted to. It was like, I have to go through all, it's going to be a long time to get that feeling. I mean, the feeling was there and it kept on, but like, it was like, I can't just do that whenever I want to. And it was just amazing. And then I understood why some women that I knew, even some of my friends had eight, nine, 10, 12 children. I'm like, well, no wonder. Yeah. So and that that was the only mystery of birth that was kind of solved for me that it wasn't surprising i knew that happened but i had no idea what it would feel like it was just incredible just absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. yeah. and i felt like i just climbed everest or something you know like it felt like that kind of an accomplishment so how far into your mid midwifery career were you when you 11 years and seven years 11 yeah 11. i was old yeah, <laughs> I was old. I was an elderly primate. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm curious, like, what would, what, like, even put unassisted birth into your head and, like, you know, because a lot of people, especially with a first-time baby, wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. And so what was it that, it was just, like, no-brainer to you? Yeah, I just trusted, I just trusted birth. I had seen enough to know that the majority of the time it works. And um, I had, um, you know, I worked at a birth center down there and um, I had a backup doc. Uh, I had a, well, we didn't have cell phones at the time, but I had a, a cordless phone. It was there and it was charged. He was on speed dial. He was 10 minutes away. He would come if I called him. He was really um, awesome. He, I knew he would help if I needed it. And I just felt like I would know when I needed help. I just felt very in touch with my body. and. I mean, maybe I was naive. I don't know. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I also remember in the middle of it, um, it was in the middle of the night. I was in really active labor and I'm in the birth pool and there's candles all around me. I had music playing. I made a mixtape. You guys are probably too young to even know a mixtape. <laughs> it was literally a cassette tape. With yes. Anyway, so... Um, but I had made this tape, so I'm listening, and, um, and there's and candles all around, and and I had a particularly strong contraction. I'm like, and I remember opening up my eyes and looking around, and no one was there. And I was thinking, it's a good thing that no one is here because they would breathe and I would have to kill them because I really like the concentration it took just to get through the contractions. Like it was, it's all consuming, right? You know? So I just remember having that very specific thought. And then I remember cracking up over the thought. I'm like, I'm so funny. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, you made the right choice because you would punch somebody out because they would want to go good, good, or something like that. And I never talk at birth unless I absolutely have to. I didn't need somebody to tell me good or this or breathe or whatever. I would punch somebody if they had done that. It yeah. Been a happy ending for them. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, specifically because you were alone at your birth, how you supported yourself through your labor in terms of like 
food, drinking, like, you know, just, I can picture the verse where there's like hands on her and like bringing this and that. And you said you had a water birth, even like filling up the tub, like how did that look? You, you being the sole person to manage all that. (laughs) Yeah, I did it all. I did get a little bit dehydrated. Um, I, I realized after the fact, I'm like, well, I should have known better. Um, but I, I did get a little bit dehydrated um, towards the end. Uh, but yeah, no, I just did it. And mm-hmm. really what would have been nice would have been to um, have some support um, postpartum, not immediate, but like in a day or two. Like, uh, So he was born at 11 p.m. And I was up at like... I was up early in the morning and by 7 a.m. that next morning, I was doing my birth, there was a lot of laundry. I was doing my birth laundry. And that made me, in still to this day, it makes me sad that I had to take care. I didn't mind taking care of myself during labor because I just, I'm very self-sufficient and independent and that's just how I am. But afterwards, I wished that somebody could have been there to just nurture me, bring me some food, do my birth laundry. I remember being very sad that I had to do that myself. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, during the labor, it wasn't an issue really. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, And so then at what point do you transition to like moving over to international work? And um, what were some of those experiences like? I'm curious how, you know, working with the Amish, your own unassisted birth and working international like what has shaped you the most um and like what kind of midwife are you you know yeah um in general i would say i'm i'm pretty hands off um i you know um sort of what shaped me i guess here i just i felt more and more restricted in terms of what you know from you know it varies from state to state what you can or can't do and I always like to say well I'm I'm working for the the birthing person I'm not working for the state you know and I still feel that and that's still I said that as recently as last year when you know when I attended um a birth here that was breach I'm like well I don't care I'm just like it was it was somebody asked me and I happened to be still in the country and um and I said that I would um and so I, you know, I'm like, I don't work for the state. I, you're my primary concern. So, um, and, but knowing that, I mean, I, and that being said, I, I have had uh, friends who have been arrested in front of their children for practicing midwife, for practicing midwifery. And I, um, so that's very real to me. And even though I wouldn't now get arrested, it was probably more that they would take away my, my licensure, you know, whatever, um, or restricted, or, you know, there would be a big, that's all very stressful, and it sounds really stressful to me, and I can't practice the way I want to, and do the things I want to, which then helps me even learn even more, um, because I need to, I, I need that stimulation, just attending really normal, nice home births, it's lovely, but it's not challenging, I wanted to be challenged, and I knew I would be challenged in the middle of nowhere, sub-Saharan Africa or wherever, Indonesia, um, because, um, because of the conditions there and the lack of resources. And that's really what I wanted to do. So that's really why I started. Yeah. I'm going to send you a 
to our last podcast episode that came out about um, PMAs, Private Members Association. Um, we created one for Born Wild podcast, um, but you might be really interested to hear about it. Um, it gives, because we practice the same way and theoretically this allows mm -hmm. us to do that. Practice yeah. outside of the scope of our license and bring the relationship out of the public sphere to just a private relationship between the midwife and the birthing person so that it yeah gives more legal protection. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is such a huge premise of this podcast and why we share these stories is because we're interested in the dynamic between how do you serve women and also have to serve a license. Is that possible? Is there a way to do both or where do you make compromises? And I feel like one of the questions that we get often or that we're thinking about a lot is just this designation of being high risk and how we think about that. And so when we, I was listening to your stories, um, I was so curious to hear these stories of really what would be deemed high risk people having more or less normal birth experiences. So I'm curious if you could speak to that a little bit, how that changed your perspective, seeing women who you never would have been able to care for here and what that, if that expanded your idea of what high risk meant. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it's, um, it's sort of, uh, it, it works two ways. I've, I've seen, because of working with because everybody that I work with um, over in like, for example, I'm just back from South Sudan. So in South Sudan, it's a refugee camp. Every single one of the women was high risk just by virtue of the fact of geography and their life circumstances. And there was, you know, lack of food and lack of everything. So they're high risk just walking through the door. But I was working in a referral hospital. And so we dealt with the high risk. Um, so um, that they had to be referred by either another uh, another clinic um, within the camp, or they had to be actively bleeding, or have have something uh, going on to be referred to us. So we did. Um, we had people with placenta previa coming in, twins and breach, and um, just um, molar pregnancies, all sorts of things. So. Um, we only do C-sections for maternal indications, not just in South Sudan, but anywhere we work um, with MSF, um, uh, just because we don't, we don't do it uh, for fetal distress or anything, just to, um, just to save them and preserve the mother's life. And um, so, um, so seeing what's possible, like having a placenta so low that I can actually feel it on vaginal exam, and yet still having someone birth vaginally and they're okay and the baby's okay and they walk out a day later and everything's fine. Um, I see what's possible, it's really incredible. Um, and then um, on the other side of it, um, having someone, I sometimes get called into situations that have already um, they've progressed. I'm not there from start to finish. So I walk in, I'm called because there's a big problem and they're in the middle of a birth. So I have to walk in and go, what the heck is happening here? And walking in on, um, or the person walks in and they're in the middle of like a big problem. So walking in on uh, a breach or having like a breach, um, just kind of hanging there and figuring out, okay, now what do I have to do with this? And figuring, because I don't know the history. I don't know anything 
that has gone on up until walking in and then I have to resolve it and you know feeling a cervix really tight around the head um which is like every midwife's nightmare when you when you talk when you ask somebody about breach one of the first things midwives will say is the head will get stuck you know that either in the pelvis or in the cervix or whatever and then you hear that it's very rare and yes indeed it is very rare but I've seen it happen and um and so seeing that I know also like how destructive birth can be so there there's the two things but um I would have to say I also have seen you know I've had women come in with a foot and a cord hanging out and it's like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> then you just wait for, for pushing and then the baby comes out and everything, you know, they come out and they're, they're fine. You, I've seen many prolapsed cords with, um, with complete breaches that have been just fine. There's, it's not an issue. Um, prolapsed cord with a head, it's another issue. Sometimes if the baby's small enough, you can replace it. Depends on where the head is. Obviously, the cord came down before the head, so there must be some sort of space. So we try to replace it if we can. But um, so yeah, I've seen what's possible, and then I've seen what you know. I've seen uh, the nightmares and things that I could either not do something about or things that I had to manage um, in spite of it. And the outcomes weren't always um, good, but fortunately we're in that environment and not here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that we um, are working towards with our families is prenatally is the idea of taking, you know, the families taking responsibility for their choices and, um, having a lot of conversations about how we could serve them um, without feeling like we're being held liable for outcomes. Um, we recently had a family who was choosing to stay home when most other families probably wouldn't have felt comfortable. Um, and the beauty of it is that everyone has their own risk analysis that they do and the risks they're willing to take. And um, and yeah, that every family's will be a little bit different, but that it should be their choice to make um, and not ours. Because if we are having to make the decision, obviously we'd err on the side of caution because it's not our baby. Like we're not gonna risk somebody else's baby. So we always have to like nip it in the butt before it even gets bad. So, but if the power can be in the family's hands and the taking responsibility, then we have been able to see our families like push the boundaries of what we've been taught is normal. And we're discovering, like you were saying, that the range of normal is just getting larger and larger for us. We're like, wow, we've never, we never have had a family be comfortable with that before. And to see it work out so beautifully um, has been opening our eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's the way it was when I started in midwifery. The families were, um, they were, they're taking responsibility. That's a, a good way to put it. And, um, and it's changed drastically over the years. And, you know, I went, I went for, um, oh, I was out of the country, of course, for a few years when I was down in Guatemala and I came back and there had been a shift and all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I, I, when I started practicing, we, we didn't, I couldn't order labs. I couldn't order an ultrasound. I, I couldn't do, and I had a fetoscope. Um, and that's what I used for many, many years. I still use it. I mean, obviously I have a Doppler and I use it. 
Um, but um, I never want to lose the skill of, you know, um, my hands in the fetoscope. Um, but it got to this point where, like, oh, everybody has an ultrasound and everybody has wants this and everybody wants that. And it's, um, and I think then, then this, we've seen the re rise of the medwife who is responding to those, those people that want that. And so I guess that's also one of the reasons why I wanted to work um, in other um, contexts because I wasn't enjoying midwifery the way it is or the way I'm expected to be here um, like I was um, uh, previously. So, and again, I, like I said, I wanted to be challenged and learn how to do more things and widen my scope. Um, I, my scope goes way beyond um, that of the CPM and even some CNMs. I know I have many CNM friends that are like, oh, I've never done that. <laughs> like, like they don't, they don't do a lot of the things that I, um, that I do um, because basically the only thing that I don't do in the field is, um, is cesarean. I refer that to the surgeon. Um, and like I said, for maternal indications, everything else we do. Um, so I'm basically doing what any physician would do because it would already risk out of a midwife's care, um, even if a physician um, were, were to, to do even some of the things. But I know physicians that don't do what I do if they, if they work here. If they're in the field, of course they do. You might not know the answer to this, but why do they not do cesareans for babies? Because it's really high risk. Um, so these women are, they have many, many babies. We cannot guarantee that they will be someplace where they could get um, surgery in the future. Um, so every, after a cesarean, you know, you're at risk. If you're here in the U.S., you're going to have two, three, four kids. I know some people have way more than that, but let's be honest. Most people are just going to have a few. Okay. So you can have a VBAC, but you also have a hospital down the road in case you need one. That's not true there. And these women are going to have baby after baby after baby. And every subsequent pregnancy, they become more high risk. The baby's more, the next baby is more at risk. And it's um, it's detrimental um, to their to their health in general. So we reserve that for only if they absolutely need it because their life is in danger and there's fetal distress. Oh well, they will be pregnant again and they will have another baby within a year or so, but they won't have a scarred uterus. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. Um, it's difficult to reconcile, but. Um, and my, so my cesarean rate when I was in South Sudan was only like 4.5%, but it was because it was that high because we had six, um, six placenta previous um, wow. towards the end of, towards the end of last year. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess it's midnight. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. When you're in these situations and like you're in South Sudan, do you have a lot of support? Like how do you not get burnt out and what do you do for self-care for yourself when you're in those places? Yeah, good question. Um, so I'm usually the only expat midwife. 
And then there are other national staff midwives that I'm there to help um, and do capacity building with and support. And then they're required to call me for the more complicated, um, more complicated things. And so in terms of for birth, um, like on this last, uh, well, in all of the assignments, but specifically the last one, there was nobody there. There were MDs there that, that worked in um, the other in inpatient departments and stuff. Again, we're a referral hospital, so working with people with gunshot wounds and malaria and tuberculosis and COVID and all of that. And there was a surgeon who, who operated on people with the gunshot wounds and all of the things that came in and did amputations and appendicitis and whatever was needed to be done. So, but none of them knew anything about obstetrics um, beyond really basic things. And it was actually, it was just, usually they didn't even walk into maternity because it, it scared them a little bit. I don't know why, but it was really funny, but they didn't know. I, I only worked with them when we collaborated. Like, oh, this patient has pyelonephritis. Can you uh, come and look at her and, um, you know, prescribe something and then we'll manage it. Just write it in the chart. And so they would come in and do that. Um, but, or if it, like a patient with COVID, then I would go into COVID isolation and I would co-manage the patient. I would do the midwifery obstetrical part of it, and then they would do the, the COVID uh, part and we'd collaborate if we needed to. Um, and how do I not get burned out? Um, oh, I do uh, easily. I was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I had the radio the whole time, even at night, it slept right by my ear. Um, I didn't get called a lot at night, but sometimes. Um, so yeah, I was, I was completely exhausted. Um, and by the time I got home and I was suffering from pretty extreme compassion fatigue and, and vicarious trauma, um, but I also recognize that and in the, in the field, what I do to take care of myself is mm, different things. I, every morning I wake up at about the same time, unless I'm already called to go to maternity, but usually not. I bring like I, this last mission was six months. I brought six months worth of, um, coffee and they were in vacuum sealed bags and you know like really 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 good coffee my small travel french press and and a cup my one of my favorite um, um pottery mugs like a really nice cup and it's my little ritual to have that coffee in the morning and just sit there watch the sunrise listen to the birds and start my day mm -hmm. um and not like get up and throw clothes on and quickly drink coffee and run. I, I don't like to do that ever, never, um, whether I'm on um, an assignment or not. So that is one of the things, that little ritual. Um, also, um, I have a small travel um, um, little uh, thing that's for, um, uh, what are they called? They're for um, essential oils, a diffuser. Um, and so I, I have my favorite essential oils. I got those from Augustine Colebrook and she um, sent me essential oils in the little travel um, diffuser. And so I have that. And um, I'll, if we have internet, which most of the time we do, not always, I find stuff online that is going to make me laugh. Um, usually Stephen Colbert makes me laugh because I watch his opening monologue. I watch it from the from the night before. I watch it that day. And um, I just laugh. Or I'll find um, a comedian that I like and just listen to something and laugh. 
Um, or I'll try to contact a friend who I know will make me laugh. Um, my mom uh, was a great support to me whenever I was, I used to talk to her and just, um, I would call her and just talk about mundane things. I would hear about the deer in her yard and what my dog was doing and all these um, little things. Um, and uh, she died at the beginning of my last assignment. Um, so and I really realized then um, after she died that what a, what a support that was to me, like how much I relied on that um, during that um, assignment. So um, that, made, that made this last assignment particularly challenging because I had a whole lot of stuff going on um, aside from what was going on there. And I still do um, because, you know, it's a process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you planning on having another assignment? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I have no idea where it doesn't get planned really ahead of time. Uh, when I feel like I've rested and I want to go somewhere, I, I contact my career manager and go, yeah, you know, I think, you know, middle of July, I'd be ready to, you know, head out and let me know what's, what's going on. And then, then they propose a few things, depending on what's, what is going on out in the field. There's a lot of different um, uh, places. Um, and so, you know, it'll be, it, it'll be curious to see where I go next. I have absolutely no idea. It's always a surprise. Do you have a mm -hmm. favorite place that you've been? Uh, I would have to say, if I have to pick a place, um, Afghanistan. Afghanistan was my most favorite place. I loved the country. I loved the people. I loved the context. Um, it was really incredible. And I, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it's so obvious to me that you have such a deep reverence for birth, and I'm curious, like, yeah, your experience with your own unassisted birth and that deep trust, like, how in those births in these contexts, like these low-resource contexts that seem like somewhat medicalized inherently, like, is there room for the mom's experience in the room? Like, is there any sacredness or how does that look in such a like somewhat medicalized and then simultaneously low resource setting? Yeah, I mean, it is medicalized and it's not. I mean, nobody has a medicated birth. Um, we do do IVs based on our criteria, for example, and things like that. Um, like if it's a grand multi, she gets an IV. If it's a multiple birth, um, she'll probably get one in each arm um we but they're they're like half blocks they're not um they don't have ivs running but we just have an open um place we do always do managed um uh, managed third stage but other than that it's really that they're walking around they're doing their own thing and then they they birth their baby if if there's nothing to intervene on really they're we're doing nothing out of the ordinary other than um other than really the managed third stage, the, the shot of oxytocin. And given that uh, postpartum hemorrhage is the leading cause of maternal mortality in the places that I go, it seems like a very small intervention <laughs> to, to do um, to potentially, you know, save us from, because I, I saw a few that just before I left, literally just before, eight hours before I left, the worst hemorrhage I've seen in my career. She she lost three liters of blood. And I know this because I 
measured it. Um, and that include, I mean, there were plots as well. So we all know what that means. So it was probably a little more than that, but um, it was horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, but um, anyway, it was, a, it was a twin birth too. It's the only um, twin birth I had there where anybody, where they bled. Um, this was the only, um, the only one. But, um, and I only saw a couple of hemorrhages there and we did a pretty good job at, at preventing them. So, but in terms of the, like the experience, so when you go to these contexts, you know, you have to see how they are culturally. They don't approach birth the way we do. For them, it's not, um, I don't want to say it's not like, you know, we have this, this whole, I don't know, these thoughts about births, particularly at home and how we like to have things. And like I was explaining my birth candles and the quiet and the music and whatever, they wouldn't know what to do with that. Like it's not, they're rolling or they just want to be lying on the cold floor because they're hot. It's 108 degrees outside. They're hot and they're lying on the cold floor. And I'm like, there's this nice Matt here, you don't want to lie on them. They're like, no, she wants to lie on them. They're rolling around on the floor. So, I mean, and so that for them is, that is birth for them. And usually having um, a family member with them, it's either a mother, a sister, a co-wife. Um, usually there's somebody there to support them. And, um, and that person also brings them food and stuff afterwards. Um, but but that's what it looks like for them. We had um, big, uh, big ropes hanging from the ceiling so they could hang on the ropes um, and they could squat and do whatever they wanted. I had those also. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> I told you it was going to start. Don't you care. It's Paw Patrol. He patrols the entire neighborhood. There's not been any break-ins since we moved in. <laughs> Um, I, uh, but no, so, so, um, we had in, in all the contexts where I've been, we've had, um, I've made sure that the traditional birthing practices were, um, preserved, uh, and whatever that looked like. So if it's hanging ropes from the wall, if it's whatever it is, um, they, uh, they had it. It, it and it is part of my job. It's usually written in the job description to preserve the, the birthing practices, but it doesn't look like this, you know, quiet, sacred, lovely, beautiful kind of thing. And that's not to mean that I still don't treat it with a reverence. And personally, I, I like it that way. And I try to make it as nice as possible. Sometimes it means making sure, not, not in South Sudan, because it was lovely there, but in other contexts, making sure that the, the local midwives don't abuse the patients because that happens very routinely in um, some countries in Africa. And it's very difficult to see. Um, what did I say? Can we ask for like an example of what that would mean? Yeah, let me agree. Hey, then he has to, he sass his back. Um, so an example, um, yelling at the woman, um, slapping them, um, I, and I, and I heard about all sorts of awful things um, from other people that have gone to other countries, um, but they don't, they don't do it in front of me usually, or they do it once and then they don't do it again. 
Um, so, but it's difficult to watch. Difficult to express. That traumatizes me. Let me grab him. curious about is just like looking at the context of midwifery in the United States you've kind of pointed out how much it's changed and the trend that it's kind of going towards more regulation more medicalization do you think that there's a way to address that like as individual midwives or midwifery communities to kind of work against that or do you find that it's kind of a yeah. Lost cause. Lost and cause. my follow-up question would be, do you think you'll ever have a practice in the States again? Oh, I can say no, 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 for sure not. <laughs> for sure will not. Um, I don't mind um, traveling. I mean, sometimes I go and help some midwife friends of mine or, um, you know, they, they need help with something or they want coverage. Once in a while, I'll do that. But I never want to have a practice again. The, the thought of it just sounds really exhausting. And um, what's the reason? I just, I don't want to be, I don't want to be on call. Uh, I don't want to get up in the middle of the night and drive 45 minutes. I don't, you know, all of those things. And then all of the other stuff, just all of the, just not have, just the lack of support with any kind of medical backup. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when needed, um, or when you do go in, just being unbelievably disrespected um, and just treated poorly, um, just all of those things. It, all of it just sounds like too much to deal with um, for me. And now I, um, I mean, I love what I do. I also, um, I also teach um, through Midwifery Wisdom Collective. Um, and uh and now I'm doing some master classes with Breach Without Borders. So um, I'm teaching with them. So hopefully between assignments, I'll do some teaching and resting and having fun. Um, and yeah, not to, but I don't have any intention of practicing here. And I live very rurally. There's not a lot of, um, I mean, there are home births that happen here, but they're not super close to me. So again, I would be traveling long distances. All the places I choose to live, are not um, and have chosen are not metropolitan areas. So I've never just had somebody, oh, her house is 10 minutes away. No, everybody was like an hour and a half away. <laughs> it was just awful. So I can't do that anymore. I'm 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 just this side of 60 and I and that's not old and I'm clearly I mean I ride my bike, I kayak, I'm very active. It's not about that, but I just at some point in time you just have to kind of honor natural but I know what I'm capable of and I would not be good um, as a midwife now I think working in uh, contexts where I go has ruined me for uh, midwifery here because somebody would go well I'm afraid of and then just say whatever the person and I would just and inside I would be rolling my eyes and and she has absolutely every right to be afraid of whatever it is she's afraid of whether it's tearing or whatever and, and in my head, I would be going, really? Because women in sub-Saharan Africa are just afraid of making it through the birth. 
you know, <laughs> and, and I don't, and I don't really truly mean that, like, but you know what I'm saying? I just, yeah. I, I you have to compassion. Yeah, you have to have compassion for women. I do. And, and it's, our problems here are our problems here. And they, they are real. And the problems there are real and they're very different. So, but, but you can't be here going, well, I know people with bigger problems than you. That's not okay to be that way. And there are plenty of midwives out there who are compassionate and kind and will listen to every fear you have. <laughs> Oh, oh my God. God. So helpful. It, it's truly like, it's truly helpful to remember like the real possibilities in birth mm-hmm. when, especially when, you know, we're trained, we're just trained so hard in our midwifery schools, like exactly what midwives are capable of this very narrow little piece and just remembering that broader perspective. Yeah, I'm curious because I remember you talking with Dr. Stu and Bliss about, you know, when you started with um, Doctrine Without Borders, my understanding is that CPMs are not generally, like they don't generally take CPMs. What's the, what's the deal with that? Because I'm sure that there's some midwives or students listening who are like, oh, their ears are perking up for wanting to do that themselves. What's that path like? Yeah, so um, they, if you go on their website, it says specifically um, what they, you know, what their criteria is um, to work with them as a midwife. Um, they do, they take CNMs, CPMs, CMs, what, whatever, because they, they're midwives all over the world. So um, there are a lot of different credentials. Um, when you're in the States, then um, you apply through New York. Um, they, and I know that there have been other CPMs. I just think most of the midwives that they have put in their pool from the U.S., um, are CNMs just because they have a wider scope of care. Um, mm-hmm. And so, because we do everything in sexual and reproductive health with MSF. Um, so that includes family planning, that includes termination of pregnancy, that includes sexual violence um, and taking care of sexual um, assault survivors. It, it includes everything. It's not all. In fact, there you can get an assignment where you never see a pregnant woman. It could be strictly um, for uh, for sexual violence, or it could be strictly um, managing a project where um, you're making sure that they have access to um, family planning and there's access to you know different types of care and they know where to go and it's it's health promotion and so forth. So. Um, so yeah, and then the context that I was just in, um, I mean, you do vacuum extraction, you do MVAs, you deal with molar pregnancies, you do all of that. And I don't know many CPMs that do those things. They're not difficult to learn, but if they're asking you if you know how to do it and you can't, and there's a whole, they give you a whole spreadsheet of all the stuff you can mark off that, that you have seen, you have done, you have done many times, you could teach. I mean, there's different categories. And so you fill that out and send that in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, that um, I had had some, and I, you have to have out of country experience, experience in developing countries, not necessarily medical experience or as a midwife, if you were in the Peace Corps 
and you, when you were in your early 20s, and then after that you became a midwife, that's fine. They, they just know that you've lived with spiders and snakes and really hot environments and you're not gonna uh, run home after two weeks going, it was really hot and there was a big spider. They, right. they invest a lot of money to get you out into the field and they expect you to be there for six to nine months. And so they don't want you coming back because you didn't know what developing countries were like. And a lot of people romanticize it and they just don't know what it's like. And it's not um, the romantic vision that some people might have. So, um, so yeah, you have to have out of country experience. It's better if you can speak French um, or have any kind of, if you speak Arabic, even better, but how, how rare is that? Very rare um, here, I would say. Um, so yeah, you, you have to have the right combination of things, you know, and, and enough experience. So I would say somebody who is a student now, their chances of working with MSF, if they got their CPM next year, for example, and then applied three years from now, probably not so good because they probably aren't going to have enough experience. They have to have some out of country experience and they have to have some, um, I, I like to call it extreme midwifery, <laughs> extreme midwifery experience. Um, yeah. So, and, no, and they want you to have um, skills with twins and breach um, because those do require special skills. And a lot of, um, a lot of CNMs even don't, don't have that. And they kind of have to learn as they go. Yeah. 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 Um, so I bet your work in with the Amish really helped give you a leg up there. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it did for sure yeah because i yeah i i enjoyed it a lot and i saw um i saw a lot of things because they don't want to transport either for anything um and so we rarely did and the midwife i worked with was very experienced so at least back then they didn't want to i don't know what the amish community is like as much now but back then over 30 years ago it was it was that way so that did help mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, we have um, our last follow-up question. This has been an amazing interview so far. Um, and the question I have is, if you could go back to baby midwife you <laughs> and give her any advice, um, what would it be? Hmm. Um. I guess it would probably be uh, to not let the haters get to you because there's always going to be, um, there's always going to be that. It, it was hard for me in the, in the beginning. Um, it was not always um, a pleasant experience being around other midwives. I never would have done something like there weren't podcasts back then, but let's say 20 years ago, if there was a podcast, I never would have done a podcast like this because it would be putting myself out there too much and mm -hmm. opening myself up to criticism. Now people can message me and criticize something that I say. It's okay. These are my opinions. I'm strong in them. I know, I know my own mind and you can have your opinion and say, Oh, you disagree. And I will respect the fact that you disagree. It's totally fine. You don't need, I, I, I now live by, if you have the choice between being right and being kind, just choose kind. And so I do that on social media. Now somebody will start to argue with me about something and I'll go, okay, well, have a nice day. And then I just like, I just walk away because I can't do it anymore. So that, that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. 
thank you so much for joining us and we're so glad we got a chance i i wasn't sure how quickly you would respond we literally listened to your interview with and Bliss. we have to talk to her. I was like, I'm just going to message her. And then you responded right away. We were like, ah. we were so well, excited. I was, I was so grateful because I listened to that podcast on the way to that birth. And I was so grateful that I, that you, your voice was in my head during this birth that was challenging. Um, it just gave me a little extra confidence. So it was really perfect timing. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Well, I was very excited and looking forward to this. I was really excited. All right, I want to know if you guys are going to the Midwifery Wisdom Conference in, um, in November in Galveston. We've been thinking about we it. We peeked at it. We have to like look at our client load too and reassess funds and everything, but we really want to try to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's like eight months away, so Hopefully you don't have too many clients uh, signed on uh, yet, but oh, it would be really great. It's going to be awesome. And Augustine's doing everything she can to really make it diverse and inclusive. When you look at the names, if you don't know some of the people, Google them. They're just amazing, amazing people that are, that she has as speakers and it's going to be new and exciting stuff that really is, um, I, I, I just think you'll enjoy it so much. I'm so looking forward to it and I'm really excited. Yeah, we will link to that um, for anyone listening. Could you also leave um, any of your contact info? We will link all this in the show notes, but can you say it out loud for people listening? Sure. Um, yeah, I, so on uh, Instagram, I'm honeymother64. And uh, my blog is um, midwifewithoutboundaries.wordpress.com. And I don't write much on it when I'm not out of the country once in a while I get a wild hair and then um, also if you go to the uh, Breach Without Borders website you'll see the Breach and Twins uh, master classes that I'm teaching I'm doing one uh, ones in Chicago next week and then Colorado Springs the end of um, May early June and then who knows from there but they'll they'll update it so yeah awesome great well, thanks so much Christine it was great to talk to you Thank you. You guys have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks everybody for listening. You can find us at Podcast on Instagram. For inquiries or feedback, you can email us at bornwildpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Emma Ray, on Instagram at Emma Ray, R-E-A, Sophia at SophiaBirth.com, and me, Leah, at Bay Area Home Births. We would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach more people. And as always, stay, stay wild. wild.